Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. This is for the week ending October 16th, 2020. This is our 52nd video cast and our podcast episode 42. Uh, you are in the right place, Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. So let's get rolling here. Uh, we'll start with our media spots. Uh, this week, we want to thank Devik Jane for putting me in his Reuters article. Uh, I guess the question was on a day we were down about stimulus talks. Uh, my quote was, uh, the market's a little bit worried about not having the extra support for the next couple of months into the holidays for consumer spending was what I was referring to. And this was viewed, the package, as a bridge to a full therapeutic or vaccine, but everyone, everything's getting delayed without the stimulus. There's not that short-term bridge that we needed to get to the vaccine to get us to the finish line. So, uh, you know, I think uh, I'm certainly in the camp of Larry Kudlow. We don't need a stimulus package for the recovery, but there are a lot of people out there still hurting that lost their jobs to, to no fault of their own. And my general view is if the government shut down their business or the businesses they work for, uh, they should be made whole. And that's what it's all about. Uh, I've been in the camp that maybe President Trump could do some type of uh, executive order. There is some precedent since we have $300 billion left over. Uh, we're going to find out uh, in, in coming days. There's still a lot of uh, dialogue about getting a stimulus package before the election. We'll see. Stranger things have happened. I think the pressure is really coming down on both sides. Uh, sitting in Washington collecting their checks, sometimes they forget how many people are not collecting a, a, an employment check. Uh, and uh, and maybe they'll, they'll get a move on. So we're going to talk a lot about that this week. Thank you again to Devik Jane for including me. And let's move right along because we've got quite a bit to cover and quite a lot of exciting stuff to cover this week. Uh, I want to point out this one article. Usually we'd cover this later in the podcast, video cast, but uh, Sean Langlois, who's, who's covered me in a number of his articles, he put out a really cool article this week uh, called Buy the Worst? Question mark. Here are five destroyed stocks for this bottom fishing strategy. And if you've been with me for a while, uh, you know, you, you can kind of tell I, I don't like to buy things that are expensive. I, I tend to buy things that are cheap and, uh, and, um, and, and uh, sell when they're dear. But he actually uh, looked back on an article from 2012 that laid out the five best and five worst performing stocks in the S&P 500. This is kind of like the old dogs of the Dow strategy, which does outperform over time. But this is for the S&P. And there was an article, I guess, published at, at the last day of 2012, which said um, the biggest winners for 2012 were Pulte Home, Sprint, Whirlpool, Expedia, Bank of America. And the biggest losers were... Radio Shack, Super Value, AMD, Best Buy, and Apollo Group. So the strategy was to buy the five losers. Now, if you realize Radio Shack went bankrupt, I think maybe Super Value did also. So, so not all these five worked. But what was the difference? If you'd bought the five stocks that performed the best in 2012 versus the five stocks that performed the worst, how did it turn out? Well, if you bought the winners, you did okay. Between 2012 and today, you made 250% gain, which was, uh, you, if you put in uh, a thousand, um, a thousand, excuse me, that's not a 250% gain, that's 150%. He says a thousand became 20, 
2,500. Um, anyway, so, so that was a great return. And so turning 1,000 into 2,500 with the five best. Now, if you bought the five worst stocks in the S&P 500, uh, they would, that same thousand rather than growing to 2,500 would have grown to $9,000. So more than three times the outperformance, three times the return, 9X return. And uh, so his takeaway is you shouldn't overlook bad stocks. Of course, do your due diligence and definitely don't invest all your eggs there. But conversely, don't ignore stocks just because someone tells you to. And this was a great case because it's not like it was some random year where the bad ones just did well. Two of them, I think, went bankrupt. And even so, you wound up with 900, uh, 9x versus 2.5x which is uh, pretty phenomenal. So great note by Sean Langlois. And that's kind of thematic for some of the stuff we're going to be talking about today. Now, we're going to move right into the article of the week here. And the, the title was uh, the, quote, I'm an accountant, stock market, and sentiment results. And this is a funny little clip from TikTok. It's been trending. It's about a struggling actor who gets tired of uh, telling people at parties when they ask what he does instead of saying, you know, auditioning is a full-time job. He now just tells people, I'm an accountant. I do, I work at places where accountants work and no one asks questions of accountants. And I use that because, um, you know, the first thing you saw with the talking heads, they've been obviously beating the hell out of the banks uh, for the last couple of months and talking them down. And, you know, they, they've generally, as, as a group, they've gone sideways. Some have gone down, some have gone up. Uh, but by and large, they've done nothing since the initial crash in um, March and April. And uh, there, some of them are starting to perk up. But um, the, the basis was the markets were down for a few days when the big four banks were reporting on Tuesday and Wednesday. And they interpreted that as the earnings must have been terrible and therefore banks are terrible and therefore they're uninvestable and therefore stay away. But when we actually did some accountant-like things and looked at the facts and the numbers versus opinion or versus what is happening in one day or people panicking out or selling in despair or final capitulation or however you want to characterize it, uh, the earnings were actually phenomenal. And the most important part is what we've been talking about for the last four weeks, which was reserves are going to come down dramatically and in coming quarters they're actually going to be starting to reverse and that already happened with JP Morgan actually released some reserves which helped their earnings but as far as earnings uh JP Morgan City and Bank of America all beat on the bottom line um and Wells missed by 3 cents on the bottom line we're going to talk about that as far as revenue goes um all of them beat revenue expectations, including Wells Fargo, crushed revenues expectations. Uh, and Bank of America was a little light on um, revenue expectations. But by and large, in line or beating both on the top line and bottom line for all the four major banks. But the story of this week is the huge drop-off of credit reserves. If you remember last week I was talking about, remember, they made these assumptions. There are two bad things happening. Number one was Cecil, the accounting change by FASB, which we're going to talk about. 
which forced them to take 100% of expected losses all up front for the first time in Q2. The timing couldn't have been any, any worse. Uh, this is the exact same mistake FASB made in 2007, which caused that banking crisis over the next 12 months. And once they reversed that accounting standard in Q1 of 2009, uh, the banks just ripped. They were up, all up like 100% off the bottom once uh, FASB realized that they screwed up. Uh, they still haven't realized they screwed up on Cecil, but maybe that's coming. We'll see. Um, but the story is, let's just take a look at the credit reserves. Uh, JP Morgan took $10.5 billion last quarter, down to $611 million this quarter. It was actually a billion, but $500 million were released, so that helped their net credit reserves was $611 million. Citi was down from uh, close to $8 billion last quarter to only $314 million this quarter. Wells Fargo, great story, down from $9.5 billion to $769 million this quarter. That's huge. And Bank of America took the most reserves because they took the, the least last quarter. $5.1 billion, uh, they were down to $1.4 billion this quarter from $5.1 billion last quarter. So hey, they had the least, the least uh, improvement in reserves, although it was still dramatic. Um, uh, Wells Fargo and uh, JP Morgan were probably the two best on that front. The other thing is they published their book value per share, all of these major banks. And what's interesting, with Wells Fargo trading down to... Uh, uh, we're going to look at the chart here in a second, but uh, where did it close here at uh, $23, 20, a little below $23. The book value per share um, came down only about a buck and a half uh, year on year from last year. So their uh, book value per share is $38.99. It's trading at about $23. So that's got the biggest discount for book, in my view, the biggest opportunity. Bank of America, um, their book value actually went up. Can you imagine over uh, a pandemic and shutting the world down for two months? Uh, Wells Fargo basically stayed steady. Uh, Bank of America's book value went up. Citi's book value went up $3 a share. It's at $84. The stock is trading much lower than that. And JP Morgan is still trading as at a premium to book. They're best in class, but their book value went up a few dollars from $75 to $79. Um, Citi from $81 to $84. Uh, Wells Fargo from $40, over $40 to just under $39. And Bank of America from uh, just about $27 to just over $28. So uh, when you look at the intrinsic value over time, and when we initially put out this thesis in late August, we showed that through the 2008 great financial crisis and the 2002 and 2003 recession, despite the fact that the stocks all sold off over 50%, like they've done uh, this time, their book value pr pretty much stayed steady. Their intrinsic value stayed steady through the great financial crisis, through the tech wreck, and it's the same as holding true here, and uh, the same results will happen. They will trade back up to, to all-time highs uh, over time, and, uh, uh, and in some cases, you know, Wells Fargo traded as high as 1.75 
Times book just a couple of years ago, which would make it a $60, $65 stock once Euphoria comes back in. You know, I had a client reach out to me. He goes, look, you know, you talk about Wells Fargo so much. It's only 2 or 3% of our portfolio. Why, why is it such a big deal for you? Uh, why, are you why do you spend so much time talking about it? So the reason it's a big deal, so last year we had a monster year and clients were up between 110 and 128% depending whether they were cash and margin accounts. And I always have to tell clients, don't expect a repeat of that. Always set expectations low that, you know, that was, you know, uh, a big year. And, um, but uh, a good portion of those gains came in the fourth quarter of the year. So for instance, you know, while um, Wells Fargo is only two or 3% of the cash value of the portfolio, that's a pocket of our book that we do derivatives, which controls a notional value, uh, which is, which is larger than the overall portfolio. So if we were effectively 100% loss wrong uh, on the position, we would lose 2 or 3% of cash, which is which is a big loss, but it's not a big deal because it's offset. We had home builders off the lows. We had a lot of good things uh, from March and April. So we'll have a good year. But how you get the monster year and how we were able to get a monster year in, in 2000 and, uh, last year, 2019, is because you have these pockets of aggressive positioning. So on a $20 million account, um, that two or 3% can control 40 to $60 million of Wells Fargo stock. So if you're wrong, you're losing two to 3% of cash. If you're right, and it moves through that, uh, and you're controlling 40, $60 million uh, on one account, um, you know, those are the type of moves when you get it right, that make triple digit years. And they don't happen all the time. And you know, it's, it's, conceivable that you lose the two or three percent and you make it up on on other things and have a good year instead of a, a you know a amazing year but but you know that that's a key reason that we spend a lot of time and, and you have to know what you own and and we own some stock on it too as, as well but when you have these ideas where there are catalysts in place that could play out uh that's where you can take very small pockets and aggressively get notional value so as a cash value, it's 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 effectively nothing. It's something, but it's it's not. As a notional value, at you know two or three times the notional value of the overall portfolio or the overall account, it can be so meaningful in moving from you know a nice double-digit year to really an off-the-charts year, and it can happen in in weeks, uh, and and in a and certainly in a quarter we saw last year, and we may very well see the same thing this year as some of these catalysts work themselves out. So, um, so the, the, the big weight on the banks, and I want to talk uh, a little bit more about JP Morgan and um, Wells Fargo as far as their earnings. So JP Morgan's the biggest bank in the country. They made $9.4 billion on the quarter, $2.92 a share EPS. That was an all-time record in the middle of a pandemic. It just goes to show you how strong the underlying economy is. It's not for everyone. Obviously, that's why we need to get stimulus to those people who have been left behind in the front-facing jobs and travel, leisure, hospitality. Um, but the economic machine, the engine is running. So... Um, you know, that's number one. Number two, um, you know, 
the loan loss provisions across the board, as I said, w were very important. Now, when you look at Wells Fargo, which is, you know, as I like to affectionately call it, the most hated stock in the S&P 500, uh, this is obviously a turnaround story. Charlie Scharf, it's his first year. They, they gutted everyone who was involved in the accelerated scales, uh, sales scandal in 2008 when the asset cap was put on. The last executive just had his last earnings call this week. So now there's no one left that was involved in the scandals, which gives them strength to go back to the regulators and say, we've cleaned house, we've changed our practices, lift the asset cap. But the other thing you need to know, and Charlie Scharf has done something smart. The reason they were able to only take $769 million of uh, credit provisions is because he took, he kitchen sinked it last quarter by taking $9.53 billion of reserves, unlike Bank of America that seemed to uh, be less conservative. That's why they had to take more. The second thing he did as he got rid of, he got all his reserves out of the way last quarter. What he did this quarter is he got all the expenses out of the way. So while Wells Fargo earned $2 billion, that's, you know, for the most hated stock in the S&P 500 to still make $2 billion in one quarter in the middle of a pandemic is not too shabby. But that was after taking $2.4 billion of charges. Okay. So they paid out almost a billion dollars of customer remediation uh, refunds to customers for overcharging accounts. So from that scandal, they just paid out a billion dollars, okay? People aren't really talking about that. Second, they paid $718 million for restructuring, which is severance, because remember, they're gonna work in $10 billion off their run rate of expenses over the next few quarters. So these are some severance charges that they're going to. Severance is one time. The free cash is recurring, that's huge. And um, and 769 million for cre uh, for credit losses against a war chest. They had over 20 billion dollars of loan loss reserves. Those are going to come back as income and earnings, and I can assure you that is not priced into the stock. There was an analyst out uh, after earnings that upgraded the stock from Argus Research. He goes, "Why Wells Fargo stock could rise over 50 percent?" And you know he talks about the restructuring. He put a $35 price target on the stock. Um, he talks about the net interest margin, which we're going to talk about in the low rates, et cetera. But he's, you know, he's basing it on, you know, their 2021 EPS estimate. It's uh, stock trades at a discounted 10 times our 2021 estimate. This is where everyone misses the boat. And this is where people think the stock market is expensive because it's trading at 22 times uh, uh, 20, 21 earnings. You're, tra you're, you're making your decision off trough earnings, not off of trend earnings. So once you get the vaccine and all of this business comes back, earnings are going to go up to trend and the general market is trading at a, at a significant discount. You'll see that multiple come down. You know, in 2009, you saw all these stocks trading at 100 times earnings and you're like, oh, we got to crash more because the stocks, no, the earnings just went to crap for one or two quarters because of the crisis, just like earnings went to crap for one or two quarters before because of the pandemic. But when those normalized earnings come back, the multiple is going to be really low. You're going to see the, the forward multiple drop to 15, 16 times and that with low rates and people are going to say, 
stocks are too cheap and you're going to see a panic in but that that's a next year story right now we got to work through the um, information vacuum vacuum we've talked about for weeks the vaccine the earnings which we're seeing now 85 percent beat on the top on the bottom line 83 percent beat on the bottom line uh, so far which is well above the quarterly average so earnings are coming in uh very very strong and um the election we've got to get through. We're going to talk about some statistics around that. And then the stimulus package, whether we get a $300 billion carve out or a full boat thing. I mean, no one's expecting a $2 billion deal. If we actually got that next week, which I, I put at a low probability, higher probability of $300 billion executive order, we'll see. I'm not sure what they're delaying on that. I think there might be some trepidation. You know, uh, Nancy Pelosi was saying, we're going to look into the 25th Amendment, which is like removing a president. So maybe they're afraid to do an executive order because they'll try and remove him but there's 200 years of precedent there's pu wide public support to get the stimulus out to those who need it if either of those two things happen the 300 billion executive order or two trillion dollar package uh, the market's going to just rip higher I, I i think you know they're lower probability they're not priced in they're priced in for after the election which i think is uh more whimsical than getting it now because after the election you don't know what it's going to look like and then the new people have to come in and figure out where the coffee machine is and so you could that could delay it till february or march which is you know going to be hard on the uh holiday season for consumer spending so hopefully they'll do something sooner than later um but uh but that was a nice upgrade to 35 dollars after they reported earnings and the the point that i'm making is he's looking at what estimated earnings are today that does not include any of those 20 billion dollars of loan loss reserves that could be reversed over the next four quarters you know if 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 a quarter of them are reversed his his uh uh estimates could be a hundred percent uh fifty percent too low so um there there are a lot of moving parts here and with expectations so low the upside is dramatically high as some of these things get worked out. Now, do you have some more pain like the article today that Buffett is still unwinding his position and all that? You know, number one, you don't know if it's Buffett or if it's his um, uh, lieutenants who are the same guys that are buying Snowflake and doing things that Buffett has never done in his career, buy a stock at 200 times uh, sales or 100 times sales. So uh, I wouldn't correlate every single move to Buffett. I would say the Japanese trading companies, that that's a Buffett move. You know, they, they're trading at low valuations. He, you know, that that everyone knew his signature was on. It was, you know, $8 billion deal. The Dominion Energy assets that he did for $10 billion, that has his signature on it. But some of these other moves, it's really unclear who's making the decision. So uh, the other pressure that you saw obviously was the net interest income uh, this quarter. Um, and in the case of Wells Fargo, this asset cap, their inability to go beyond a $1.95 trillion uh, loan book is impairing their earnings power in the short term. So I see that. So while most people see that as, a, as bad news, I see that as an upside catalyst that's not priced in. Now, people say, well, how can the stock ever recover if the, the asset cap isn't lifted? Well, um, keep in mind, the asset cap went into place in 2018. The stock traded at $55 earlier this year 
with the asset cap on. So um, that is just additional whipped cream, but it certainly would be a catalyst straight up to book. I think I think there are two things, and uh, we're going to talk about Richard Kovacevic, the former CFO CEO of Wells Fargo, was on CNBC right after they reported, and he had some important things to say about that. Um, but real quickly, you could see here how dramatic the change has been from when they were doing their CECIL credit reserves in Q2 based on ridiculous outlooks of, you know, 20% unemployment and negative 9% GDP, whereas we're at 7.9% unemployment now and negative 3.5% GDP for 2020. So uh, these uh, loan loss provisions have just dropped off the charts. Jamie Dimon had an interesting quote. He said that a good, well-designed stimulus package will increase the chance of a better outcome if that happens. So what he's saying is if we get a stimulus package, his bank is over-reserved by $10 billion, which means that comes back as earnings. The question is, does it come back in two quarters, in four quarters, or in eight quarters? But either way, if you consider that they earned um, $9.4 billion on the quarter, that, that, you know, that's, they're going to get a whole free quarter of earnings back if a stimulus package is packed and that, uh, is uh, passed. And that's no different for you know, Wells Fargo with all the provisions that they have as well. Um, and you see they're just dropping off off the charts here for Wells. Um, now, the other thing that was interesting, um, so City Michael Corbath said, uh, all else being equal, if the management adjustment had not changed, he talks about ultimate uh, ultra-conservative uh, management adjustments as far as the reserves, we would have seen a reserve release of roughly $500 million on the quarter like uh, JP Morgan did. No one, no one other than us, if you look back at our podcast, we're talking about the possibility of reserve releases in the past two months. And they already, uh, JP Morgan did it this quarter, City would have done it, but they were ultra conservative. They're still taking their worst case scenario. Base case, they say it's probably not true, which means those reserves are gonna be coming back as earnings very, very quickly. Um, uh, the Wells Fargo CEO said, <clears throat> over the long term, annual expenses will be reduced by uh, $10 billion lower. That speaks to the efficiency ratio. Theirs is in the 80s. They brought that down about a point, point and a half this quarter already, but their peers are in the low 60s, and that's all free cash that's going to go back to the owners, the shareholders of the company. The question is, how quickly does the market see it, right? So you can only control you know, two or three X notional value of your total portfolio uh, with two or three percent of cash for a limited period of time uh, for the catalyst to work out. So we'll see. Here's Bank of America. Um, and uh, OK, so you had the outgoing CFO Shrewsbury on with Wilford Frost on CNBC on the day they reported earnings. And here's what he had to say about the asset cap. Number one, he didn't expect it to last this long, but it's very constructive uh, engagement with the regulators. Everything that needs to be done is being done to get the asset cap removed. Uh, he says that his sense is that the company will get through it. 
and it's a different team today operating across the board on issues that have to be improved for the asset cap to go away. So he's basically saying, okay, bad actors, aggressive sales practices, wrong incentives, government punishes us on that basis. Well, now different incentives, different management, different practices. Why is our cap still on? It shouldn't be on. And uh, I think that the government is going to figure out very quickly, you can't handicap one of the top lenders in the country and expect the recovery to continue. You don't get a sustainable recovery without credit expansion. And anyone who's been around more than five minutes knows that there is no recovery without banks recovering. So um, uh, if you take care of the banks, you take care of Main Street. That's really how it comes because they're the credit transmission mechanism. Um, okay, then there was such an important call. They didn't even post it uh, as far as I could see on the CNBC website. Fortunately, I got it with my mobile phone, so it's not the best quality, but you can watch it at hedgefundtips.com. Um, and Richard Kovacevic was talking to Melissa Lee and David Faber. He made like the most important points I've heard. Uh, first off, he said that he believes Wells Fargo is working primarily, first priority, on fixing the issues they have with the Federal Reserve to remove the asset cap. If that comes off, that's $10 immediately overnight in the stock. That That's $10 immediately. I think the vaccine, which Pfizer came out today and said they're going to apply for emergency approval in uh, mid to late November, I think once that's actually approved, <coughs> um, you're going to see another eight to ten dollars for for banks for for Wells Fargo. I think those are those are really the two two key things. And uh, it really was Richard Kovacevic that got me clear on this. He he said the vaccine is the most important catalyst. So he said number one, he's still a shareholder. He thinks the turnaround's going to come. That uh, ah the other critically important part, which I wouldn't be bold enough to make a call on, although we're seeing it in the two ten spread. He believes that the net interest margin, which has been the source of their earnings um, um, weakness, it may have reached bottom here. Okay, that's his gut from a guy that's a legend in the banking business. I am going to take that at face value. That uh, that's probably a pretty good call. Um, he said the vaccine is the most important catalyst for bank stocks, as certainty equals economic turnaround equals more employment equals loan growth. Uh, couldn't agree more. And then he went on to bash Cecil. And, and, you know, if you've listened to me for the last couple of months, I've been talking about Cecil like crazy and saying that they're over-reserved and they're going to have to release reserves. But uh, this really stuck out. So, um, as I said, it's an accounting change that requires banks to take 100% of expected losses as reserves up front. And here's what Dick, uh, Dick said. Absolutely makes no sense increases the cyclicality of the banking industry rather than reducing it, which is the intent. Their intent was to reduce the cyclicality. They did the opposite effect, unintended consequence. And the FASB is making a very big mistake by forcing the accounting change on the banks at any time, but particularly at this time of uncertainty. And they made the same schmucky mistake in uh, November 15th, 2017, and crashed the economy and crashed the banks over the next 12 months. And you know when the economy and the banks turned around? In first quarter of 2019, when they reversed their mark to market FAS 157, and the banks doubled overnight. And once the banks doubled, they started lending, the economy came back, everything came back all at once. 
Maybe they'll wake up and and uh, temporarily suspend it for the next eight quarters until the economy is back to pre-COVID GDP levels and then rethink it and scrap it all together if they're really smart. It made no sense to do. It should be looked at on a quarter by quarter basis as conditions change. Taking 100% of reserves when estimates are 20% unemployment, it's insanity. So long story short, I, I couldn't agree with Dick Moore. He made critically important points. And if that was ever reversed, that's another $10 a share. I mean, I you know, you can't handicap what bureaucrats are going to do. But uh, that would be something that would be a game changer for the economic recovery. You want to talk about V, it would be an exclamation point with a pogo stick. That's what would happen if they figured that out. Um, so um, so that's that. Uh, OK, so the point I made was FASB accounting change was instrumental in causing the great financial crisis of 2008 and also instrumental in reversing it in Q1 of 2009 when they reversed their mistake. And perhaps they'll wake up and, and do it this time. Okay, what has changed as it relates to the Wells Fargo thesis? Has anything changed since we saw earnings? Well, the yield curve has gotten better. Uh, we pointed out the last two crises in 2008 and in 2003. Uh, the green is financials here and the white and red is the 210 spread. As this steepens the financials bottom, then it started to recovery. We've had the steepening. The uh, everyone's looking at short rates, but if you look at the spread, it's getting better. Um, and uh, and sure enough, we're seeing the beginnings of the recovery. But I, I think this is really just the beginning. Despite the the uh, emotional capitulation selling this week, it still held this long term support where all the vo um, volume by price is located. So nothing's really changed here. We just need one of these catalysts to kick in, whether it's stimulus, vaccine, Cecil wakes up and gets their head out of the sand, uh, rather FASB does, um, or just all the sellers are out, which may have very well been the case this week. So we're going to find out. Um, the uh, Cobra Kai leg sweep uh, from two weeks ago. So we talked about this leg sweep capitulation selling. It actually held that level this week. It's gone a little bit lower here. So we're kind of, you know, we're white knuckling it here. That's that's life. That's where you get paid. Uh, so it held, it, it hit two. So, so this was the leg sweep in May before you had that uh, cyclical rotation on good news about the recovery. You know, the other headwind we have is shutdowns in Europe now with COVID and um, you know some schools shutting down. Every time that happens, money comes out of cyclicals. It goes back into tech because everyone thinks that the shutdowns are going to be forever. Everyone bets against science. We'll never have a cure. We'll never have a vaccine. They all go into their hot, you know caves and cry cry the night away. The point is, don't bet against science because you know we you know we saw what happened to President Trump with the Regeneron thing. Obviously, as the CEO of Regeneron said, that's a patient of one. But, you know, there are things happening here, and um, it's just a question of when it's going to be wide, widely available, whether it's that, you know, the WHO, which has been right about absolutely nothing in the last 20 years, uh, came out and said remdesivir doesn't work when there are multiple studies that have proven that it does. It takes the... Um, the um, the duration of the illness from 13 days down to six. The Regeneron took it from 13 to five. Uh, 
they're working on a breathable version of remdesivir, which would be an absolute game changer because it means you don't have to go to the hospital for five days to get it injected, which would bring the cost down, which means if you go to a baseball game and you get COVID, you go to the doctor and they write you a script and you go to Walgreens and you pick it up and it looks like an asthma inhaler and you just spray it for three days in a row. It's like taking a Z-Pack, only it's easier. You don't even have to swallow pills. You just inhale it three times and you'd be off to the races. Now, so that that's what we're hoping for. It's only in phase one, but we know the underlying drug from the state studies that were not done by the WHO, which by the way, there's, there's well, let's, let's just leave it at that. Um, I, I, I like the studies that are done in the US better. So let's just, um, let's hope for that. That's number one. Number two, there've been a lot of notices about uh, work being done on breathable vaccines, which would probably bring the vaccination rate up by double uh, if it, if they made it that easy to administer. So here we are. We had the big sweep, and then and then the stock moved up uh, 51% in the next 29 days, and then you had some shutdowns, and money moved out of cyclicals, and it came down, and it's been going sideways ever since. And then the same thing here after earnings, it held 2275. I'm sure they'll take that out just to scare people out if it, before taking it back up. But that's where we are. There's no real change. The thesis is still intact. I think earnings were much better than could have been anticipated. You had the stimulus headwinds, you had the general market, you had the shutdowns, and you had a lot of, um, uh, you know, the J&J &J vaccine got paused, although they say they're going to have millions of dosage uh, ready by the end of the year. The Lilly treatment that was supposedly going to be like the Regeneron treatment got paused. Um, uh, Pfizer, though, is... Uh, is doing better. They're going. Pfizer's going for the emergency approval by mid-November, so that's a positive. But you had all these headwinds of no stimulus, um, shutdowns in Europe, or worry, or curfews in your in in France. Um, you know, drug pauses, vaccine pauses. One good vaccine news today. Obviously, the market was up a little bit because of that. So all the things that would take money out of cyclicals. So it wasn't just. Um, earnings, because if you look at earnings objectively, like we just walked through, they were way better than anyone could have anticipated. And I think as the dust settles and we get closer to some resolution on the information vacuum, vaccine, earning, earnings are great. By the way, we're going to cover that. Um, the election and the stimulus, um, you know, we'll know how quickly money's going to go back into cyclicals. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind, on banks, 60% of the first stimulus checks were used for savings or paying down debt. Only 40% was used for spending. So that directly benefits banks. If we got another $300 billion in checks, call it uh, $180 billion would go straight to banks paying down debt. So they'd have to release those reserves. And uh, as we've seen, the deposits have been through the roof. Uh, the other thing about banks, the reserve requirement for banks was re reduced from 10% down to 0% this spring. So banks have every incentive to extend unlimited loans. Um, what's handicapped them from doing that is Cecil, the stupid accounting change, and um, 
the uncertainty in Q2, but now they have more incentive. And in the case of Wells Fargo, the asset cap, which needs to be removed if they want the country to recover sustainably and not have to you know, borrow another $3 billion um, in treasuries in order to finance more stimulus payments because they've, they've handicapped their major bank that could have done the credit transmission mechanism for them. Um, anyway, so, uh, so hopefully they'll figure all this out or someone will pass along my podcast and video cast and maybe that will be helpful for a lot of people. Um, next, uh, tens of billions of loan loss reserves will be coming back to the banks as earnings. This is not priced in. We covered that. Wells Fargo, huge amount of reserves. We covered that. And as Dick Kovacevic said, the vaccine is the catalyst for everything or some type of silver bullet treatment. If Regeneron turns, turns out to be that, that would be great, but we won't know that for a little while. So vaccine will probably know sooner. And, um, and then the last point I made was the same folks selling the bottom. Remember, this was after earnings. They were all selling that day. Selling the bottom in despair today will be the same people buying buying them up 75 to 100% in euphoria, you know, 6 to 12 months out, maybe 18 months out. And that's just the way it always works. So, um, and... You know, the other thing is there's no right way. You know, there are some people that'll buy it up 100% and make another 100% buying the breakout, and they just like to do it that way. And like I said last week, there's many ways to the top of the mountain. Some people are, have the stomach. They want to sit and they want to wait for it to form the bottom. They make the first 100% and the second 100%, and that's just another way to do it. So uh, different strokes for different folks. There's no better way. You just have to to do the one that suits your personality the best, and for me, I've always liked to know what I own, buy high quality when it's at, at a period of dislocation, sit through the, the gut-wrenching things and make doubles and triples and quadruples over time. And if you can do it when there are imminent catalysts with a little bit of you know, leverage where you get massive notional value for nom you know, very small risk, that's how you can really have off the chart years and, and quarters and so on. So um, the other thing is uh, the... Bank of America Global Fund Managers survey came out on Tuesday. They interviewed 200 managers running over $600 billion. Now, here were the key takeaways. And there were a lot of things that were covered, but the key takeaways, and you can just click here to view it. Um, if you are listening to the podcast, go to hedgefundtips.com. Down the right side, click uh, look at most popular articles, and you'll see... The I'm an accountant stock market, click there, and then you'll see the link within the article, October Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey results. So the key takeaways were the cyclical rotation that began in September. If you remember, we were pounding the table that, um, you know, industrials, financials, transports, um, the cyclical sectors dramatically outperformed uh, tech and growth in the month of September. That paused in early October as you had shutdowns and uncertainty about stimulus and uh, vaccines. But what they're saying, Michael Hartnett uh, is saying that banks and energy will participate and lead in the fourth quarter. Money's going to go back into that. that that's going to be continuation. So it was the start of a new trend. It took a pause. It's going to resume in a material way. 39% of investors expect a credible COVID vaccine to be announced in the first quarter. I think it'll come sooner. <clears throat> and they pointed out by sectors, where was max despair? Max despair was in energy and banks. That was the contrarian trade. And that's where we're focusing 
and uh, and spending a lot all of our time. So that was a nice edification of what we've been talking about and what we've been doing um, uh, with a with a view six, twelve, twenty four months out. Um, now. Uh, investors lowered their cash levels from 4.8 to 4.4. That's not an extreme. Below 4.4% equals greed, which means this could have some more room. What is an extreme, with this, this stood out. Because if you remember in February, I believe it was February, when the U.S. dollar was still strong as hell, um, there was an extreme in bullishness. Uh, uh, no, there was, there was a... Um, extreme view that the dollar was overvalued and the last time there that that extreme had been that high was the early 2000s when the dollar fell materially it fell like i think it was like 40 percent over the next 12 months and sure enough the dollar has rolled over since that extreme well here's another extreme energy is now the largest short in 20 years and i put this chart out of what happened next it was right in the 2002-2003 recession and uh, this began a three to five year global commodity cycle, which is consistent with moderate inflation coming back with $12 trillion of fiscal stimulus. I think we're at the cusp of a, a three to five year commodity cycle. I think emerging markets will benefit. I think commodities are gonna benefit. And, uh, and, and I do think energy is gonna have a last run. And you know, it's, it's not some view of climate change or not climate change. It's just as we renew, we need all the renewables we can possibly get just to support the emerging market population and growth, energy demand and mobility out of poverty. The demand for energy is, is going to dramatically increase as more and more people enter the middle class. So it's not what's happening in the developed world that tells this story. It's what's happening in the developing world and the demand that's going to persist for the next 20 years. So I think I think we're setting up here with uh, with the dollar, with uh, potential inflation, with a number of factors that uh, buying the high quality, highest quality energy here uh, with a long term view and a strong gut in the short term can have a material impact. And we covered last week what Carl Icahn said and, and others. Um, OK, so now on to the shorter term view for the general market. Everything was mid-range here. Bullish percent was 34. Really, you need that over 40 before you get worried uh, about lightening up. <clears throat> Fear and greed was 55. That's mid-range. And uh, the uh, active manager started buying, but that was only at 73%. I think it's actually jumped since, so we, we, we may have to keep an eye on it. My message for the week was don't bet against science. Um, and I've said that consistently for the last two months. We saw Trump's recovery. There are other treatments out there that are working exceptionally well. Uh, and we're going to wake up one morning with a vaccine. And then the whole game is going to change overnight. And you don't want to be caught flat-footed into that. Whether that's a week from now, before the election, four weeks after, eight weeks after. What's the difference in the scheme of things? If you take a 12 to 24-month outlook, it's not a big deal. Um Okay, so in the meantime, okay, so I said expect short-term volatility with the uncertainty before the election, etc. Uh, in the meantime, we're adding marginally to our core bank positions and selectively picking up the highest quality energy names on weakness with a 12 to 36 month view. Why? Because we did quote the accounting tied back to the song of the week and the numbers make sense with a reasonable time horizon and a strong gut. So that is that. Um, okay, moving on. Let's just see if there's anything that we need to point out on the... 
Oh, by the way, 61% of the managers in the global fund managers think that the election is going to be contested. Uh, that will add more uncertainty. I, I think I think that's probably a lower probability than people think. Uh, here's when they think the vaccine will be announced. There are a number of people, a decent number of people that um, less than last month, by the way, which is why the cyclical rotation stalled. Uh, last month, 33% believed we'd have it in Q4 of 2020. That dropped down to about 23% this quarter, and that's why you saw the cyclical stall. So the whole trigger, as Dick Kovacevic said, is the vaccine for banks and for cyclicals. Um, we talked net equity exposures picking up. And... Um, and that was that. The most crowded trade is still long U.S. tech for the sixth straight month. Um, and uh, the biggest risk is COVID and that followed by the election, followed by the tech bubble. So those are the three things people are worried about. The COVID worry picked up a little bit in the last month survey. Uh, the other thing that I was talking about with regards to Charlie Scharf, kitchen sink corner, the profit slumped, but no one was talking about the, the magnitude of the severance and the remediation charges, which we covered. That was covered in this article. Um, JP Morgan, we covered. Diamond Sigils, the all clear. JP Morgan earnings smash expectations as loan loss provisions plummet 94%. And it was the same case with Wells and uh, City taking the uh, loan loss reserves down over 90%. Huge, huge thing. Um, okay, deposits at JPM up. Uh, 30%. The return on equity was 29% in the middle of a pandemic. It just goes to show these big four banks, when they're hitting on all cylinders, are just going to shoot the lights out for sure. So uh, the other thing that's interesting, so here we are, uh, you know, for instance, Wells Fargo and um, Citi really haven't dropped this much this quickly since the great financial crisis in 2008, 2009, the last time FASB screwed up. And... Um, this article was, here's how much investing $1,000 of Bank of America at Great Recession lows would be worth today. And they go through this whole thing that people were worried about the loan losses and all the mortgage foreclosures and everything else. But if you just, you know, uh, sucked it up and had a strong gut and you put $1,000 in, it would be worth $7,453 today. Now that's today, it's down 33%. So it'd probably be 10,000 as of pre-COVID. Uh, so 10X return in 10 years is not that bad. And I think you're gonna see similar type of results with some of the really overbeaten down banks over the next 10 years that no one wants to, to touch with the 10 foot pole. Some people are just gonna flip them for you know 2X or 3X over the next couple of years, but some people will hold them. And, I, and you could certainly see some of these banks at, at nine or 10X with, you know, just like we saw with Bank of America for those who had the courage to buy it when no one else wanted it. And that, remember, people were talking about the banks being nationalized and uh, all the other different things, and they took money from the government. It was much worse then than it is now. Um, uh, and, and their recovery in terms of their economic numbers were not nearly as quick as what we're seeing now as well. So it's just something to keep in mind. It reminds me of the Bottom Fishers article by Sean taking the five stocks that no one wants. You made 9x versus the ones that everyone wanted. You made 2.5x. It's the same thing here. This is going to be a 10x situation. It's a similar similar outcome. 
there was a SignAlert sign Asset Management put out a note this week uh, regarding energy. It appears that investors are banking on a worst case scenario as the uh, energy selects sector spider, I guess that's the XLE, is still down almost 50% for the year. Since the introduction at the end of 1998, the energy select fund has never been cheaper compared to the S&P 500 index. Moreover, the book value to price ratio of the fund is 1.1 times, which means that the sector's valuation is slightly above the total asset value if all assets on component companies' balance sheets are liquidated. This ratio is at its lowest since 1986. So, you know, unless you are certain that nuclear fusion is going to be launched tomorrow and we're going to have no need for fossil fuels ever again, uh, buying at these prices gives you a large margin of safety, even if they phase out over the next 30 years and you're just treating it like a runoff business. It can, you know, the cigarette business, by the way, which is a runoff business, has been one of the largest outperformers of the last couple of decades. If you bought, there was another article on Philip Morris. It was some ridiculous, like 10,000% return owning cigarettes, which was a runoff business after, you know, less and less people are smoking in the developed world. Guess what's happened in the developing world? And it's the same thing with energy demand. Um, but uh, but you can't sell that story right now. It, it'll just happen. By the way, we had a huge draw this week, uh, as expected again, uh, and that's going to catch up with us. No invest, no major investment for five years. It will catch up. You will wake up. Oil will be at sixty, seventy dollars a barrel, and everyone will say what happened. So um, okay, now Goldman really stuck their neck out t this week, and not only got uh, bullish on. Um, you know, the integrated large cap, you know, mega cap energy companies, they actually went down the bottom of the barrel and went to oil field services, bullish on oil field services. Talk about a ballsy move. Uh, and I agree. I mean, you know, you got to go the highest quality because, again, 20, 25 percent are going to go bankrupt. But uh, this this analyst, uh, Angie Sedita from Goldman, said the sector is still down 35 to 40 percent from its June highs. We believe the pullback offers investors an attractive entry. Quality companies with appealing 12-month catalysts have sold off by 20 to 50 percent. In our view, the long-term positive macro thesis for an oil recovery in the second half of 2021 remains intact, and the sector offers opportunity for substantial upside in 2021. Additionally, uh, the often seen seasonal trade of the sector rallying into the end of year post-election and the early in the year lies ahead. So there's some seasonality that's coming into favor now, and that's why we've been getting exposure. Uh, there all, a thesis is also predicated on a vaccine, which means travel demand will come, up, come back uh, aggressively. And uh, even without a vaccine, we're seeing globally... Um, that come back. So they, they have a few names, Baker Hughes, Halliburton, National Oil, well, Varco. You can even buy the ETF, XES or OIH that has all these names. Uh, Schlumberger today sold off on earnings. I think that was an opportunity to pick it up for the long term, kind of best in class. Uh, Goldman also upgraded Exxon this week. Uh, the dividend is still a concern. Goldman Sachs upgraded it anyway. Uh, so uh, they think the dividend is intact. I, I think that doesn't even matter. I think you can buy best in class 
and as the 20, 25% of the bottom end go bankrupt, they're just gonna pick up share. So do you have the gut? And in the meantime, in the short term, you'll have a 10% dividend to collect. Maybe uh, it gets cut to a 5% dividend. What's the 10 year paying 75 basis points? Come, give me a break. Uh, you know, if you liquidated the company tomorrow, you'd probably get $60 a share instead of 40. And in the meantime, you paid 10 or worst case 5% to wait. Uh, okay, Walgreens is another value stock that's been beat to hell and they crushed earnings. It was up, I think, 4% on the day and that's going to continue. Their prescription business did well. The front of the store is still weak, but uh, this may have turned the corner and things are picking up in the UK where they got smashed with uh, Boots Alliance. So that was good news on Wells Fargo. Um, uh, excuse me, on Walgreens Boots Alliance. I wake up in the middle of the night and say Wells Fargo. Anyway, um, okay. So uh, Morningstar, which I think they've got a good analyst group over there uh, on individual stocks. They're kind of like, you know, they're always at the Buffett annual meeting. they got a good group out there, and I like the way they think about economic moats, and they have a solid uh, framework for how they look at companies. So they're bullish on these value stocks, and I, I agree with all of them, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, ExxonMobil, they have a, um, a buy rating and a $74 fair value estimate on the stock. Uh, so that would imply, you know, 75% upside from here. Philip Morris uh, pays a 6.1% dividend. They've got a $98 fair value on that. I agree with that. Wells Fargo, they have a $46 fair value on that. So, uh, you know, a little bit above book. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, CVS, which is the same story as Walgreens Boots. We have some Walgreens Boots, which we like. Uh, and they put a $92 fair value on CVS. Simon Property, the highest end. Yeah, a lot of malls are going to go bankrupt, not theirs. Uh, and they've got a $152 fair value. ConocoPhillips, they've got a $64 fair value. I like that. And Kinder Morgan. I mean, the, the owner, Richard Kinder, has been buying the stuff hand over fist for the last year and a half, two years. And they've got a $21 fair value. It yields an 8% dividend while you wait. That's a midstream company. I think these are all great. You know, I think this is kind of like... Um, uh, Sean Langlois's Market Watch article. These have all gotten smashed this year. If you bought these um, five, six, seven stocks, you know, and um, for like 20% of your portfolio and 80% you just indexed, you'd, you'd outperform uh, over the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, speaking of which, uh, John sent me a Ask Me Anything. If you're on the podcast, you're going to get cut off in three minutes. And we're, we literally have 20 more minutes to cover of great, great, amazing stuff that like there was so much great stuff out this week. You got to uh, go to hedgefundtips.com, click on the video cast, just move it to minute 60 so you don't have to listen to this part again. It's identical. And from minute 60 forward, you'll catch the end of it. Um, but there's a lot. This is not just trail off usually it's only five minutes there's probably going to be about uh, a good 10 15 minutes of really good stuff coming up uh so john asked a question this is the guy who runs the newspaper group in ohio running a hedge fund must be much different than trading a traditional account however i would imagine that many of the same principles apply i have a few questions that may help myself and others as we navigate our way through this market do you limit each holding to a certain percentage of the portfolio if so what percentage Okay, so yeah, this is going to be completely different for what I do. Uh, I would say if you are, uh, you know, kind of um, at home person, I think the number one thing you want to do is just is just index the the likelihood of of your ability to outperform 
without years of experience is is strongly diminished but that's not to say you shouldn't participate and get some alpha so i would say you want to have 80 90 percent in a balanced beta portfolio which has an s p index and then whatever exposure you need to fixed income based on your age talk with your financial advisor this is not advice click on terms on hedgefundtips.com do your own homework yada yada but uh so i do 80 90 percent in a balanced portfolio and then like that last 10 percent you could get aggressive. So like you could have a, a portfolio of these seven stocks that I've just talked about from Morningstar. These are great values. Have a 24 month outlook, collect all the dividends. They've been beaten down. This is a once in a generation opportunity for some of these stocks. And you're gonna probably have a blended, you know, four or 5% dividend yield. And on balance that 10% of your portfolio will probably up, be up 50 to 75% in the next two to three years. So why wouldn't you have 10 or 15% of your portfolio uh, exposed to some real quality franchise values like this. Um, so, uh, so I like that. Uh, and generally, you know, this might be a little too concentrated in energy. He's got one, two, three, three out of seven names. So that might be too many. So you might want to do like one or two energy, one or two banks, and then, you know, one of each of the others, you know, consumer staples, um, real estate in, in terms of Simon property, et cetera. Um, and uh, do you set targets and stops on each holding? In other words, when and why do you exit? Okay, so um, so I so traders like day traders like to have stops because they have to, to manage the risk. I manage risk by how I size it in the portfolio. So in my case, whether I'm expressing through derivatives, like I talked about.